Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Now, I've had a little uh, fight with allergies this week, so that's why I sound like I'm speaking through a tube. I don't feel as bad as I sound. This is our last psalm in the summer, and we're in Psalm 16. And you'll notice that there is a title there. I'm not talking about the bold titles that the publisher puts in. But you'll notice a title that says, A Mictam of David. Psalm 16. A Mictam of David. Now what in the world does that mean? A Mictam. Uh, Spurgeon thought that this, there were, there were about six psalms that are called Mictams of David. He thought that they were a golden psalms or special kinds of psalms, but it doesn't mean that at all, I don't think. Others think that the word Mictam is probably some musical reference. But most scholars today uh, interpret a little differently. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of our Hebrew Bible. Uh, you know, this Bible, the Old Testament, was written in Hebrew. Uh, we're reading from a translation in English. But in about 270 AD, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. And that's called the Septuagint translation. Alexander the Great, when he conquered the world, said, I wouldn't go to the Hebrew Bible when everyone speaks Greek. He said, let's translate that whole Old Testament into Greek so our people have access to it. And when they came to the word miktam, they translated it inscription. And Jesus quoted from the Septuagint translation of the Bible. Most people don't realize that. When Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he's quoting the Greek Old Testament, not the Hebrew Old Testament. He's quoting the translation. Now that's, if you're a theologian, that should really cause you to start thinking because Jesus says, the word of God says, and guess what he's quoting from? Translation. Not quoting from the original. So he even sees that the translations have authority, which is very interesting. But anyway, uh, Miktam means, um, is translated a tablet inscription. A tablet inscription. An inscription is a writing. Tablet is, of course, a piece of stone. And evidently that these Miktam Psalms were so important that David is saying that they should be engraved in stone. You ever been to a museum and on a monument, there's an inscription on the monument. Or you go to their major buildings in Washington, D.C., and there are inscriptions on the building, and they're very important inscriptions, things that should be written in stone. <clears throat> David may have thought this psalm and five or six others were so important, the truths were so important, that they should be written in stone. I think the pastor's statement last week was like that. To believe that God exists, uh, but it doesn't matter, it is meaningless. And you'll see that David takes that theme. That God not only exists, but he does matter, and it is important. I think that's the theme of this, uh, this psalm. So let's look at it. First of all, the psalm opens with a plea. Look what he said. Preserve me, O God. Now, that word preserve there, talk about preserves, you know what that means. It means keep me in your care. Okay, protect me. Watch over me like a, like a shepherd watches over his flock. That means, Lord, I am putting myself into your care. Now, the fact that he, he has this prayer, preserve me, O God, indicates 
that he feels he needs God's help to be preserved. He can't do this on his own. Otherwise, you wouldn't pray, would you? You'd just be wasting your breath. To pray means you need God's help. Now, as king, why does he say God preserve me? Now, listen very carefully. Number one, because of the threat of death. Our president is threatened with death numerous times every day. There are people out there who want to assassinate him. Uh, he has a secret service that are hired to protect him, but guess what? They really can't protect him. Somebody wants to get to you, they'll get to you. And David is under the threat of death, and so he asks God to supernaturally protect him or preserve him. And also, I believe, and we'll see this as we go down the psalm, that he is being pressured to abandon faith in God and embrace idolatry. And he says, oh Lord, I'm being put under this pressure. Preserve me. Keep me close to you. Don't allow me to, to drift away. So we have this prayer. Now we have the reason that he believes God's going to do it. Look what he says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. And in other words, and if you don't come through, I'm a dead duck. You know, that's the way I would say it. Uh, David, in the past, has trusted God, and he's trusting God now to keep him. Now, why does he say, because I put my trust in you? Well, because God has entered into a covenant with Israel. And God says, if you do this, I will do this. If you trust me, I will take care of you. If you do this, I will bless you. And uh, there is this relationship. And so he says, Lord, I've entered the relationship, and I'm serious about it. Therefore, I'm trusting you. Now look at the depths of his cry. Oh, my soul. Look at that. Oh, my soul. And uh, this is uh, very interesting because the word soul there means liver. Oh, my liver. Uh, that's the depth of the cry that David has. He's crying from the depths of his inner being. And the Hebrews believe that the liver, you know, and the kidneys, the entrails were the important parts of your body. So uh, this is a cry from the depths. Of David. He said, Oh my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Now look at the print type, the print type in this verse between the two words Lord. The first word Lord is L O R D, all in caps. You see that? That is Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the covenant God of Israel. So, from within his being, David says to the Lord, he says to Yahweh, look what he says to Yahweh, You are my Lord, capital O-L, small O, small R, small D. You are my Adonai, you are my master. Now, notice that in verse 1 he says, I put my trust in you, and here he says, you are my master. It's not enough to say I trust, without obeying. Trust and obey. There's no other way. So faith and works, or faith and obedience, are very important in this relationship that we have with God. It's not enough to say, I believe, I believe. Uh, he has to be your master. You have to trust Him. You have to be obedient to the Lord. All of Israel said they believed in God. But that didn't matter, did it? It was meaningless. Their life didn't show it. He's saying, Lord, I have given you my life. I have turned it over to you. You've been my master all these years. Now notice how he makes it personal. 
My soul has said to the Lord, you are my God. So he makes it very personal, and so must we. We must have this personal relationship with God. And then look what it says at the end of verse 2. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Now this isn't talking about moral goodness. It's not talking about, you know, I'm a sinner and if I'm good it's only because of God. Not talking about that kind of goodness. When he says my goodness is nothing apart from you, he means the good things that have happened in my life. All the goodness that has happened to me. None of that has come except through you. You're the one who has provided me with all the blessings. So he traces these blessings and the good things that have happened to him back to its source in God. Now what he's going to do, he's going to turn his attention. Now verses 1 and 2, he's been speaking to God. Now look how he turns his attention toward others. Okay? Look at verse 3. As for the saints who are on the earth. Now the saints here means God's people, Israel. He's going to address these people. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now that's the positive side. Okay? David says, now, when I consider all of Israel, I'm, I get excited about the people of God. They are my delight. Uh, so I would say that David loves God's people. But there's a negative side. And look at verse 4. Their sorrows, look how he went from how he delights into them. His delight, but look at this. Their sorrows, you see that? Verse 3. His delight, look at verse 4. Their sorrows. So he's going to now go to a negative side. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Even though David loves God's people, he realizes there's a problem. They are running toward false gods. They are falling into idolatry. And he says their pain or their sorrow will be multiplied. And this breaks David's heart. Then he says this. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer. In other words, I'm not going to participate in what they're doing. And uh, nor will I take their names on my lips. Now when he says their drink offerings, he's talking about the false gods. Uh, evidently, God's people are offering sacrifices to these gods, all kinds of offerings. And they're called drink offerings. And these would be liquid offerings that they poured out at the altar. And he said he will not participate in those offerings to the gods, nor will he take up their names on his lips. Now this is the first clue, verse 4 is the first clue that David is under pressure to abandon the one true and living God and turn to the idols. Evidently, a lot of these people are doing it and they're encouraging him to do it. He says, I won't do that. I won't make any offerings to them, nor will I mention their, their names on my lips. Okay? So I think that he's being pressured by God's people who think <clears throat> that there is a God, but... There's no consequence in believing in a God. And they're saying, well, let's believe in the idols. At least they do things for us. You pray to the God of uh, the harvest, and he'll take care of you. Pray to the God of water. Pray to Neptune. He'll take care of you. Pray to Jupiter. He'll take care of you. And they are turning to idolatry. And David says, I will not 
mention their names on my lips. Now, the reason he says that is because in the Old Testament, uh, God gave specific instructions about the names of gods. And I want to show this to you. I want you to look over at Exodus 23. Now, there are several places you can find this, but these are two examples. Exodus 23. And when you get to Exodus 23, go down to about... <clears throat> go down to verse 13. You'll see that this is a section where the laws are mentioned. In fact, verse 10 talks about how you are to sow the field for six years and then how you're to leave it empty on the seventh year in verse 11. Verse 12, six days you'll work and on the seventh you will uh, not work. It'll be a Sabbath. Then verse 13. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect. <coughs> now watch this. Here's God's instruction to Israel. And make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Now that's what David just said. Their names I will not have on my lips. Now notice, God has entered a covenant with Israel and he's given them laws. And David says, hey, you're my master. I follow your laws. I'm not going to fall into that trap like the other people are. So here is a specific injunction. Let me show you another one. Go to Deuteronomy. Keep on moving. You'll find Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And look at Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. And when you get to Deuteronomy 12, look at the beginning of the chapter. And God speaks and says, these are the statutes, through Moses, these are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess. Now I want you to remember this concept of land. Everybody was given land, and they were to observe these statutes in that land. All the days that you live on the earth, not only when you feel like it, you will utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you have dispossessed served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills under every green tree. That was their worship spot. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. These are their idols. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods. Now look at this. And you shall destroy their names from that place. Now, when you go back to Psalm 16, we see that David pleads with God to preserve him. Uh, preserving from what? Uh, preserve his life, I think, the threat of death, and also to preserve him from the pressure from the, his fellow countrymen not to fall into idolatry. So at the end of 4, he says, nor will I take up their names on my lips. So, David is an obedient servant of God. And that's what he's asking God to continue to preserve him uh, in doing, to continue to be faithful to God. Now, from verses 5 through 11, we come to the second section of that psalm. Okay? Second section. And here David pledges his allegiance to God in the future. Now look at verse 5. O Lord, look what he says. You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup you maintain my lot. Now I want you to notice, first of all, how he makes it personal again. Do you see that? Look at how many my's you have there. My inheritance, my cup, 
my lot, inheritance, cup and lot, these are the things that God is blessing David with, with the right sacrifices and inheritance, and all these things. But in verse 5, notice that God is the subject of the sentence. You see that? Look at this. You are the portion. Look at verse, end of verse 5. You maintain. Look at this. Oh Lord, you are the portion. You maintain. Uh, God is David's portion. That's why David can trust him. If God says, I'm your portion. If God said to me, Allen Street, I'm your portion. Whatever you need, I'm your portion. Then I can trust him. Otherwise, if he's telling the truth, wouldn't you agree with that? I can trust him. And then he says he maintains at the end of verse 5. You maintain my lot. Maintain deals with that first word in Psalm 16. Preserve. God preserves. God maintains. See? And that's what he's trusting God to do. It's very important. Look at verse 6. The lines that follow to me in pleasant places, yes, I have a good inheritance. That's the second time the word inheritance is used. And this is sort of a repeat. Where he says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. What does he mean? What are the lines? What in the world is he talking about here? <clears throat> you know, I read these verses, I have no idea what he's talking about. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Now when I read this first, I thought David was saying, uh, all the lines on my face uh, have fallen in the right places. I don't look too bad for an old man. And that was my first reading of it. But I realized later that that's not what it was talking about. Uh, these lines refer back to the word lot. And it's a measuring line. It's a tape measure. It's the line that you pull out to determine the size of your lot, the dimensions of your lot, and where your lot is located. Your lot is located three lines over. You know, or however you would do that. And this is what he's talking about. And David says that God has um, given him prime property. The pleasant places is David's lot. Remember, God promised an inheritance to every Jewish people person. Remember what he gave them? When Israel went into the promised land, they each had a lot. And the lot was determined by God. He's the one that, well, you got that one there, and you've got that one there, and you've got that one there. And you didn't choose your lot. That God chose the lot for you. And God chose a very nice lot for David. And so David is trusting God to preserve and maintain what he's given him. And uh, he's, he, he knows that in the past God's taken care of him. The bottom line is that... Uh, God cared for David, and God's going to care for David, and therefore, David, why should he turn to any idols? See? And it's the same with us. God cares for us, and we should be trusting God. So that's what I think this verse is talking about. God has an inheritance for us. Some of the inheritance we already have. And the pastor was talking about eternal life this morning. He said eternal life is, just doesn't mean forever. It's a quality of life. God has given us an inheritance even right now. And we shouldn't be turning away from him. So, he tells what God has given to him. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have 
a good inheritance. God's taken care of him in the past, he'll continue to take care of him. Now in verse 7, we have sort of like a transition verse. Uh, as a result of God's provision, as a result of God taking care of David in the past, look what he said. I, what? Might? No. I will bless. Now what does tense is the word will? Is that now or is that in the past or what? That's in the future. God's taking care of David. Comes through every time. Therefore, David says, I will bless, meaning praise the Lord who has given me counsel. David anticipates in the future to continue to be praising the Lord because in the past, God has guided him. Notice it says, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, who has given me counsel. See how this goes back to Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walketh not in the what? Counsel of who? The ungodly. David's not following the ungodly counsel of these other Jews who are falling into idolatry. Guess who David follows? The counsel of God. See, He has God's law, and God guides him through his law, which we just saw back there in Deuteronomy and Exodus. So God has given David good counsel, and David says, I know you'll continue to do it, and I will bless you. And he goes on to say, My heart, this is very interesting in verse 7, my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Now what in the world does that mean? God gives him counsel, but his heart also gives him counsel. God guides him, but his heart also guides him. God guides him through his law. When he's awake and he reads the law, he guides him through the law. But at night, when he's asleep, guess what? His heart guides him. What in the world is he talking about? At night. Uh, and that word heart there is that another word for you know your inner being, you know, sort of from the depths of your being. Uh, what kind of guidance is he talking about at night? Well, if you look just at Psalm 17, look what he says. You've tested my heart. You have visited me where? Look at verse 17, uh, chapter 17 and verse 3. Psalm 17 and verse 3. You have tested my heart. You visited me when? In the night. God speaks to David in the night. Not through his mind. Not through his eyes reading the law. But God still speaks and he speaks to the heart. You know how he does it? David has dreams and he has visions and all kinds of things that God speaks to him through the night. Now this is sort of interesting. Let me just show you one example of this. I want you to go over to Genesis 46. Genesis 46. God guides in the night through our hearts. Now this is describing Israel's journey, Jacob's journey to Egypt. And here's what it says. Look at verse 2. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night. Look at that. God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night. And he said, Jacob! Jacob! He said, and he said, I'm here. And God said, 
Look at Nunati. God does this. There are night visions. There are dreams. Now, I know there are a lot of people who don't believe in any of that kind of stuff anymore. But I'm going to say I do. I'm going to say I do. Okay? Now, that's pretty strong for Griswold College professor. <laughs> you say, why do you believe that? Because Peter said on the day of Pentecost, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your young men will dream dreams. Old men will see visions. Are we in the last days? Yes. See, so I believe that that's possible. So David says, even when I'm sleeping, God's preserving me, and he's guiding me. I'm not having nightmares. I'm not having these weird dreams that when I wake up, I make decisions based on the spur of the moment. God's even, even when he's unconscious, it may even be when he's not aware that God's guiding him at night. God is speaking to his heart, and when he wakes up, he moves in a certain direction. He doesn't realize it's because God's been moving in the night. We don't understand how all this happens, but I believe that that's what David is saying, that God speaks to him at night. And he says, because of that, uh, look at verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. I have set the Lord always before me. He speaks to David consciously. He speaks to David subconsciously. And David says, I have set the Lord always before me. And even in the night, when I put my head on the pillow at night, I say, oh Lord, I'm trusting you through the night. Guide me through the night. So I've set the Lord always before me. And that's something that's been repeated over and over again in the other Psalms. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Because he is at my right hand, he's always at my side, even when I'm asleep, I shall not be moved. Going back to the beginning of that Psalm, God preserved me. Guess what? He will be preserved. He won't abandon the faith. He won't die in the sense that we think that somebody's going to knock him off. He will not be moved. That's how the end of verse 15, chapter, uh, Psalm 15 ends, isn't it? He who does these things shall never what? Be moved. That's how Psalm 1 ends. Like a tree planted by the water, I shall not be Move. See, everything goes back to Psalm 1 and 2. That's the basic psalm that sort of is the umbrella for all these other psalms. Those themes are repeated over and over again in these other psalms. So David says, I will not be moved. And that's very important. So uh, what we have here is that he knows that his prayer in verse 1, his plea for God to preserve him in verse 1, indeed will happen. With God at his side, he will not be moved. Therefore, look what he says in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. That's just a parallelism. It's another word for heart. My uh, heart that's aglow rejoices. In other words, I rejoice on the inside. And then look what he says in verse, end of verse 9. My flesh will also rest in hope. I rejoice on the all outside. I rejoice on the inner man and my outer man, my body, also has rest and hope. Now that word hope's important. His body rests in hope. Hope always deals with the future. Uh, 
I don't know that there's ever a time when hope doesn't deal with in the future in the Bible. Every time you see the word hope, you should just write the word future. Every time. 90% of the time that the word hope is used in the New Testament, it deals with the future resurrection. And I think this one's going to get back to that same issue. He's talking about my body rest in hope. My hope is even when I'm dead and buried, guess what? I still have hope. You mean you have hope when you're dead? I do. I have hope in the resurrection. David believed in the resurrection. And he has this confidence. He rests in hope. Now look what he says. And he gives us the reason in verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. That doesn't mean soul like you think of soul. But the spirit that's going around. It doesn't mean you won't leave me in Sheol. You won't leave me in the grave. When I die, you won't leave me in the grave. When I'm dead, you won't leave me in some pit. You won't say, well, David's gone. Let's just bury him. Let's forget about David. He says, that's not my hope. But even in death, he knows God hasn't forsaken him. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. <clears throat> when I'm dead, you know, I don't expect to uh, see corruption. And we're going to see how all this relates to Jesus in a minute. But he wasn't expecting, he was expecting to be resurrected in the Ultimately, his body, even though it had decayed, that's not what he would say. One day he'd wake up and he'd look and everything was changed. So, David is expecting some sort of resurrection. Look at verse 11. Now, that's negative. Everything there is negative, by the way, in verse 10. You will not leave my soul, nor will you allow. Now we go to positive in verse 11. You will show me the path of life. That's David's hope. David's hope isn't that death is the end. David hopes that he's going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and he will emerge on the other side into a pathway of life. Now he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about a resurrection of the body here. In your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David's entire focus is on God and that God's going to take care of him. He's going to take care of him in this life. He's going to take care of him even when he dies, he's not going to be forsaken. Now, when you look at this verse, there's 11 verses here. Um, you discover that parts of this verse, especially verses 10 and 11, are quoted in the New Testament. Peter quotes verses 10 and 11 in the New Testament, and he applies it to Jesus. Okay? Now, I want to show this to you because it's interesting. Go over to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. Peter's on the day of Pentecost. stands up and he preaches when the uh, miracles begin to happen and people are wondering what in the world is going on. And Peter said, let me tell you what's going on. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. The last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. The young men shall see visions and the old men shall have dreams. And he begins to say that all of these things that are happening are fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. And then he, he preaches the gospel and he talks about Jesus' death. For example, in verse 22, Acts 2.22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the 
determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and you have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I shall not be forsaken. We've seen that just in this psalm that we just read. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. We just saw that, didn't we? For you will not leave my soul in haze at Sheol in the Old Testament, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. That is a direct quote from Psalm 16. And David applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Paul, uh, Peter applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is possible that in these last few verses, even though David applied, David himself applied it to himself, he was speaking more than he understood. Because these were words that God inspired and were going to also apply to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus did not see corruption at all. He didn't even... He was only in the grave less than three days, and uh, his body didn't even decay. And God raised him from the dead. Okay. Now that's Peter on the day of Pentecost. In fact, if you continue to go down, while we're here, we can look at it. Men and brethren, let me speak to you freely uh, concerning the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that the fruit of his body, according to his flesh, that he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Jesus, that his soul would not be left in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we're all witnesses. So we see that Psalm 16 is a prophecy. Spurgeon said that every verse in Psalm 16 could be the words of Jesus. Let me just read it. Jesus says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you said to the Lord, You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And he goes on and on. I don't know that that's correct, but I do believe that these last few verses have a prophetic meaning and are applied to the Lord Jesus. Let me show you one other example. Go to Acts 13. Acts 13. We'll move from Peter to Paul. <clears throat> Now I want you to know something. That Peter and Paul did not get along real well. They weren't the best of friends. Next week we'll start the book of Galatians and you'll see how Peter and Paul have a falling out. And Paul does not really like Peter that much. They get along, but they don't see eye to eye. But I'll tell you, on one thing they see eye to eye. They both quote Psalm 16 and they refer to Jesus. Now, in Acts 13, we have Paul's major sermon at Antioch in the city, beginning in verse 13. We'll pick up down at verse, um, look at verse 27. Look at verse 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him, in condemning Jesus. In other words, if they would have understood the Old Testament the way it was supposed to be understood, they would have never condemn Jesus. 
And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should uh, be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you the glad tidings, the good news, that promise which was made to the fathers, the Old Testament saints. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We saw that when we covered second psalm. Verse 34. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. That is Psalm 16. He has spoken. I will give you the mercies of David. Same promise that I gave to David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Psalm 16, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, and he was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. So, you know, when David said in Psalm 16, 11, I will not, or 10, I will not see corruption, guess what? He did go in the grave. Did his body decay in the grave? Yes. So was David wrong? In that sense, he was wrong. But guess what? He was speaking a prophecy that was correct. So he didn't even realize what he was saying. What he was writing was inspired. He didn't even realize it. And it applied to Jesus. So it says, He was buried, and with his fathers he saw corruption. Look at verse 37. But he whom God raised from the dead saw no corruption. So both Peter and Paul say that Psalm 16 finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And therefore, David spoke more than he understood. David thought he was speaking about himself. <laughs> he was wrong. He was speaking about Christ, and he didn't even realize it. It's strange, doesn't it? And yet, that's what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that in times past, by the Holy Spirit, God spoke through the prophets, and many times they didn't even know what it was writing about. They desired to know, well, when is this going to happen? Who is going to fulfill this prophecy? They didn't even know about it. But they were so moved by the scripture, by the Spirit that they wrote these things down, and it was prophecy. And Christ is the one that this psalm points to. Jesus Christ. So that will end our psalms for the summer. Next week we'll pick up with the book of Galatians. Okay? Very interesting book. It's a very important book dealing with topics. Father, we thank you for our study today. We thank you that we've been able to go through 16 psalms this summer, covering 15 weeks or so. And it seems like time has just flown by. It seems like just yesterday we started, and now we're this far. And Lord, may uh, these psalms, and especially this psalm, uh, that is worthy of being inscribed on a tablet and a monument forever, take hold in our hearts. And we realize, Lord, that you not only exist, but we should trust in you and do what you say you will do. Lord, help us to be people of faith. Help us to say, the Lord, Yahweh, is my Adonai, my master. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.